0: We got to buy a brew house. We got to buy a number of fermenters. Well, how many fermenters do you want? Well, how quickly can you turn a beer around? Is it two weeks, three weeks to be safe? What should we do? How many beers do we want on tap? How much do these fermenters cost? It'd be more is better. You but know. then we also have to pay rent on the space that those fermenters sit yeah. in. And so on and so forth.
1: In this podcast, I meet with brewers and brewery founders to deep dive about the origins of their brewery, the kind of beer they brew, and what it takes to run a business as complicated as a brewery. In this episode, I meet with Ty and Kenneth, two of the founding members of Burke-Gilman Brewery, a very young brewery, less than a year old, whose opening day trauma is still fresh in their mind. In this episode, we talk about Kenneth and Ty, and the origins of Burke-Gilman Brewery. My hope is that these guys can remember some of the problems they had to face very recently when opening their brewery that an older, more established brewery has probably already forgotten. I'm the cycling-certified Cicerone. Welcome to Washington Beer Talk.
2: I'm Ty Ovendale. I'm one of the founding partners here at Burke-Gilman Brewing.
0: I'm Kenneth Treese. I was a homebrewer for probably about 20 years off and on uh, before doing this, and I'd always wanted to go bigger, buy a bigger tank.
2: And
1: where
0: are we right now? Right on the Burke-Gilman Trail by Children's Hospital, up the road from U Village.
2: How long has this place been around? We opened uh, last July. What the nineteenth, I think, was our was our official like press opening day. You know, I had had visions of opening as early as March, but our equipment didn't even arrive till the end of March, and that was its own story. And then, you know, it was a, a cascading. A series of expectations. Well, we will be open in May, and then we will be open in June, and then July uh, 19th rolled around and we opened the doors and poured beer for people.
1: It's so funny because, in my mind, you guys are a brand new brewery that just opened, but in reality, you've basically been here a year now.
0: It's coming up on it, yeah. Where it um, time sure does fly. It really does. When I mean, you got to be open every night, you got to schedule a shift every night.
1: So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's start with background so you both mentioned now that you started off homebrewing what what was your life before this like how did you even find out about her homebrewing how did you find out about brewing what was the brewery you looked at and went oh i'll i could open a brewery what what, what's
2: the real story a buddy of mine started doing homebrewing i know 10 12 years ago as uh, extract brewing as a lot of people start and i did a few brew days with him and i'd always been a fan of drinking beer certainly uh but did a few brew sessions with him and it was a ton of fun. Uh, I actually, because I'd done a few extract batches with uh, my buddy, decided to go straight into all grain. And my very first batch was uh, I did a brew in a bag. So I had a great big stock pot. All my grain was in the bag. And of course, it was a disaster. The bag split. There's grain everywhere. I'm fishing stuff out with my hands. I got really, really poor efficiency. I was trying to make a black Blackview Porter clone and ended up with a beer that ended up Uh, like 3%, 2.8 to 3% because I got such terrible extraction and everything with my brew in a bag, but perfectly drinkable. And it was beer that I had made. And I was very, very excited about that. And so I ended up making that same Black Butte recipe two or three more times, just be like, I'm going to nail this. And then I decided it was boring to make the same thing over and over again. And from there, it was just something new every week and had to start inviting a lot more people over to my house to drink all of this beer that was appearing, uh, filling up my filling up my uh closet and later my kegerator when i built one of those and it's one of these things it snowballs as far as equipment you know i built one mash ton out of a five gallon uh rubbermaid cooler then i built a 10 gallon one and then uh first first one kegerator and then a second kegerator and it just kind of snowballs as you build this bigger and bigger stuff like kenneth was saying it wants a bigger tank uh bigger batches is not something i didn't scale that way i scaled more uh on like process equipment to make make my process go smoother and faster. It, it, it was it was a wild ride. I made a lot of great beers. I made a lot of really bad ones.
1: Oh, you're the second person in two weeks who started brewing a, a Black Butte clone. That's crazy. Yeah, I think so. And now, and these days, just shoots is hurting. They're um they're they're too big of a brewery to be making it with all these small breweries around taking their local share. But we can talk about that later. And talking about homebrew equipment, that is so funny. Like I really. Because I, I sort of did the same thing, you know. You start off with a little bit, and keep accumulating, accumulating more and more stuff. I just wish somebody had told me right off the, right from the beginning to just go ahead and spend the five hundred dollars on this set of equipment <laughs> rather than like maybe the four hundred or so dollars worth of crap I wasted working up to that. But of course, you know, if I tell you, hey, no, you need to buy, you're going to end up here at this point with this equipment. You're not going to think that's going to happen. It's the only way to learn. Yeah, Yeah, it's the only way to learn. That's what hobbies are for. Yeah. (laughs) What a tragedy. (laughs) Anyway, how about you?
0: Um, So, I started out, I went over to a friend's house who was brewing an extract batch. Now,
1: he said he'd been brewing for 10 years and then you said you'd been brewing for 20.
0: Well, I'm a little older than Ty, so yeah. Um, Yeah, so it was, I think, right after college, I went over to a friend's house who was brewing some some sort of Christmassy, like a winter warmer type thing as an extract batch. Um, and he wanted help bottling it. And so I helped him bottle it and he gave me a six pack for my troubles or something mm-hmm. like that. And that was a lot of fun. And so I went you know, to the homebrew store and bought the, whatever, the $75 kit with a five gallon thing that goes on the top of your stove and, you know, enough, enough sugar uh, extract to, to make a batch. And of course it was, you know, it boiled over, there was burned sugar everywhere. It was a disaster, but it was also a lot of fun. So I kept you know, doing that more. And at the same time, my dad is just kind of a, a serious serial hobbyist. Like He just really likes that, oh, I could really get into this and build this and then build this and then build this. And so he heard of me doing this because I brought home a couple of the bottles for Christmas one year or something like that. And he started doing it and he went right into all grain. Um, and then, you know, while he was at the junkyard picking up abandoned kegs to make pots, he was like, well, my son needs three of these too. And so he would sort of come over, you know, for like quarterly visits over to Seattle and he would bring more and more brew equipment. And we would just sort of build the system up. And so we was like, I think probably fairly quickly, probably by about the 10th batch I was doing all grain. And that was a lot of fun. My first all grain batch was actually a cranberry pale because I had a coworker who had grown up on a cranberry bog and he was going home and visiting for Thanksgiving and brought me back like a two gallon bag of fresh pick cranberries and just added them to the mash. A friend of mine and I just kept going with, you know, more and more, bigger and bigger. Um, We would throw house parties where we would have like six beers on tap, stuff like that. Then eventually I bought a tiny little bachelor studio condo and could not really brew anymore. There was no room for it. So I took probably, I don't know, 10 years off until another friend finally started brewing in his garage and I went and started hanging out with him. So around about that time, uh, it was actually Ravenna Brewing. It was just around the corner of the neighborhood, opened up, or you know, started putting out social media saying they're going to open up, and I was really interested. Um, <clears throat> and a bunch of us went, and I think I'd always had the impression that a commercial brewery is this big thing in a warehouse, you know, in Ballard or in South Seattle or something. It's not really like a neighborhood place, but they hollowed out a garage and built a brewery in a neighborhood, and it was a whole bunch of people from the neighborhood from my neighborhood just hanging out sitting down they were bringing their kids bringing bringing their families and hanging out and having a beer and i was like oh we could do this i've never wanted to own like a warehouse factory right but owning a little neighborhood joint where we could you know scale up what we'd been doing at home only you know for real with real commercial equipment we're like this is actually possible we should we should research this and then you know a group of four or five friends started talking around and then doing research playing with spreadsheets for a couple of years. And then finally, you know, sort of asking, okay, who's really serious? Like, you know, time to put your cards on the table. And the four of us were serious. And then we spent another year and a half finding real estate, building it out. And as you say, now we've been open a year. So it's been quite a, quite a journey. I think Ravenna opened three and a half, four years ago. Yeah. Something, something in that neighborhood. Yeah. And they've been, they've been great friends. Like once they once they realized oh you guys you're those guys who hang out here all the time. And we explained to them what we're interested in. They were, they were they were just so helpful. It was like any tips you need, any advice you need. We took them out to dinner and Yeah,
2: that was I think that was our first big business expense as we 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 took Ravenna Brewing out for steak. <laughs> <laughs> and learned a lot and made an attempt to learn from others' mistakes so that so that we could, as Kenneth always says, make all new mistakes of our own, which we definitely did. Uh, we we fell through or we came through pretty pretty well on that part of the promise to make our own mistakes. I will say that the Seattle brewing community has been really, really awesome. Everybody we talked to, Dick up at Crucible has been great. The guys at Nine Yard were great. We did a brew day with them. It was really, really informative. That was when we were making a decision on what our equipment was going to be and what we are going to buy and how we were going to arrange the brew house and all of that. We've received nothing but support from other brewers in the community other I mean you th- you'd think we'd be in competition with each other but we're really not because you know we're really even Ravenna which is our closest brewery to us or, or maybe the Ram we're just a different place we're just a different place and we su- support us different part of town geographically the vast majority of people that come in here are they walk here It's really really heavily uh, patronized by locals and that's yeah makes a place really awesome um,
0: during the during the the snow that we had in February was it A bunch of us work at UW. And so UW was closed for the snow. And and the people who worked at UW were like, well, I got nothing to do. I might as well just go open the brewery. All right, well, we're open at noon today. Why not? And so I put out the word on social media, like, hey, if you're snowbound with the kids and you can walk here, come on in, we're open. And I, I came in one time at, you know, 1230 in the afternoon. There was not a car in the parking lot because why would you drive in those conditions? But the place was packed elbow to elbow because everyone was like, oh, I'm so tired of being at home. I want to go out somewhere and you guys are literally the only place open on the block and it was just so much fun so that sort of really drove home that like i'm not even sure we need this parking lot like a whole bunch of people are walking here you know or biking here
1: you guys aren't necessarily a bike themed brewery maybe wound up with burt gilman as your name after finding a spot on the burt gilman what maybe what was the origin of that
2: we already we always were focused on northeast seattle as a as a neighborhood um i'm the i'm the lone one of the Ownership core that lives outside of Seattle. I live out in the burbs, but everybody else lives right in this right in this area, and so northeast Seattle was always a target. It's also a relatively not very brewery dense area uh, in general. And yeah, there's so a big,
0: there's a big open spot on the map if you map right? out all the breweries. Yeah.
2: So. yeah, and so you know being near the trail was was a no brainer if we could find a place near the trail, and it wasn't always certain that we would. We looked at a few other places, most of which were pretty close to the trail at the very least, but. Being on the trail was one of the core things we were looking for, uh, and um, as Kenneth said, we were we were looking for a location for at least a year before we found this place, which really just sort of fell in our laps in a lot of ways and turned out to be the perfect location in, in any number of different dimensions. The trail is right here. We've got a great patio, you know, relatively good visibility from the street, great neighborhood, parking lot. I know, you know, you think we could get rid of the parking lot, Kenneth, but I think we need it. I
0: think we should fill it with food trucks. But. <laughs>
2: Oh, that's the other thing. We've got so many restaurants. There's six different kinds of food within a, you know, 200 feet of the front door, which is, you know, none of us wanted to operate a kitchen. And food really does help bring people in. And people, you know, we probably have 30, 40 people here eating on a lot of nights. You know, they just grab a burger me. or whatever. Uh, anyway, so looking through northeast Seattle, it's kind of a no-brainer that we'd end up near the trail. We probably spitballed—I don't know—conservatively ten thousand different names for what this brewery could be, Uh, and once we landed in a spot directly on the trail, we were almost—we were flabbergasted that the name wasn't already taken.
0: Another choice was to name it after the neighborhood, but if you look at the map, we're actually like directly between neighborhoods. Technically, on this side of Sandpoint, we're in Bryant, but we can see Laurelhurst across the street. And Laurehurst thinks of us as their brewery. So if we were called Bryant Brewery, I don't know if that would upset Laurehurst. And if we were called Laurehurst Brewing, I don't know if it would upset Bryant. And so we're keeping the peace is between the two neighbors. These are the
2: local neighborhood dynamics that a guy from Linwood does not fully understand. Yeah. That <laughs> I don't, you know, they're, they're, they're petty turf wars. Are, yeah, are we doing
0: fundraisers up. for Bryant Elementary or Laurehurst Elementary? And uh, I think the so is yes. Because we is can guess.
2: only pick one. Guess. We can only pick once you raise that flag outside <laughs> the front of which neighborhood you're in. There's no going back. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. I noticed when I first found out about you that I looked at took a look at your logo and I assumed that the guys on the logo were you two and uh, and they're not they're like you know they're they're Burke and Gilman or whoever oh, yeah. the fuck exactly. right Exactly <laughs> I had not met you yet I was like these guys
0: are handsomer than a real version Yeah these guys are
2: so have got a very 19th century appeal this is a this is a hipster place
0: <laughs> Well, you we should see our locomotive out back. We keep it back there. So. Oh, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, right.
2: absolutely. Uh, I have no doubt that zoning permitted it. Kenneth would purchase a locomotive to stick out back. Yeah, oh, it yeah. really useful
0: <laughs> to go with my coal mine.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I remember assuming back in the day riding a Burke-Gilman trail that Burke-Gilman or Burke and Gilman or whatever they were, they must have been cyclists. But of course not. They're just the people who owned the train track that got turned into the bike trail and
0: yeah. classic. Uh, the town of Issaquah used to be called Gilman. Uh, that was where uh, Daniel Gilman owned a coal mine, and part of the, a spur of the railroad went over there to help supply Seattle, I guess, with coal. And uh, Burke went on to be a judge uh, in Seattle. The Burke Museum is named after him. There's there's a Burke Street. There's all kinds of Burke things in, in town.
2: Yeah, there's a Gilman Mall in Issaquah. Is there? So I didn't know there is. Oh, okay. There is. So if if you're a 19th century coal baron, you too can have a mall named after you now. <laughs> right, That's my this my chance. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think you both mentioned this actually, the beginning stages of the brewery involved a lot of poking spreadsheets. That's a really great way to sort of summarize all the back of the napkin math that you have to do to make a brewery, even consider opening a brewery, but what are some of the thoughts that actually went into that? What were some of the calculations you were making on that spreadsheet? Just to, you know, and maybe in the vaguest possible sense or whatever details you want to give up. I'll get back to that question in just a second, but first, a quick aside about Patreon. This podcast is possible because it has Patreon supporters. Those are people who like the podcast so much that they go to patreon.com slash cycling to get access to more episodes, double the number of episodes and other perks and swag. This episode introducing you to Burt Gilman Brewery has a companion episode on Patreon that will be released next week. It goes into even more depth about their beers they brew. If you like Burt Gilman and want to hear more about them, then go to patreon.com slash cyclingcicerone. In other exciting news, Burt Gilman Brewery will be on the Tour de Pints this coming Saturday, Saturday, May 18th. The Tour de Pints is a Seattle-based bike and brew. It starts at 11 o'clock at Peddler Brewing, and we go to five breweries all around northern Seattle, including Burt Gilman Brewery, which will be our third stop of the day. I definitely suggest you check it out. Go find the Facebook event Tour de Pints 2019. Check out the Cycling Cicerone Facebook page or Seattle Beer Week.
0: So there's things like, um, okay, so we got to buy a brew house. We have to buy a certain number of fermenters. Well, how many fermenters do we want? Well, how quickly can you turn a beer around? Is it two weeks? Is it three weeks to be safe? What should we do? How many beers do we want on tap? Like how much these fermenters cost? It'd be more is better, you know but then we also have to pay rent on the space that those fermenters sit in and so on and so forth. Um, there's, you know, those kind of considerations. Then there's, once you actually start building out, you realize actually the brewing equipment was a relatively small portion of our startup costs. There's, you know, I don't know how many chairs we bought, but you got to have chairs. People got to sit down, right. Um, or they're not gonna drink your beer there's you know the tables there's uh building that bar you can build it yourself or you can pay a professional to build it and the professional's certainly going to do a much better job than you're doing unless that's what you do right i program computers i don't build bars so paying someone to do that with their markup there's like like there's a bunch of stuff that unless you build out you know a space like a restaurant space for a living you know this is your first time and you know realistically it's probably your last time you're not going to get good at this you're going to make guesses there's also things like you learn about things like zoning and things like code, like, like building codes. So, I mean, you'll, for example, you might notice that a, a reasonable fraction of the little breweries in Seattle have capacities that are like 45, 47, 48. And that's because at 49, you trigger a different zoning code and you have to do a different set of build out and have different, uh, there's different requirements and so on. And so a lot of people conveniently size their tap room so that it will exactly be, be the, the most number of people they can seat without triggering those new requirements. We didn't do that. So we see, I think 87 inside and another 40 outside. So we actually went through that whole process. Part of the problem with going through that process is that again, you don't, unless this is what you do for a living, you don't really know what you're doing. You're looking up laws online on the city of Seattle's website and thinking, I think we need to fill out this form guys. Is is this the right form? Well, let's read it. We're all smart people. Oh, this is legalese. What? Oh geez. Does this mean this or does this mean that? I'm not really sure should we talk to a lawyer? Well, if we're going to talk to lawyers and we might as well just hire a contractor because it's going to cost a lot of money anyway. And we should just hire a contractor and let them figure it out. You know,
2: someone has to take a day off work to go down to, you know, the municipal building downtown and stand in line and wait for our plans to not be approved.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Tell us what's wrong and we'll fix it. Like we want to follow the rules. We just don't know what the rules are. Right. In terms of the actual like practical aspects of, of, of brewing, you know, if you've, if you've homebrewed for a while, you know the basics. Well, I need this kind of vessel, and I need this kind of vessel, and I need that kind of vessel, and I need to be able to transfer it around, but I need to be able to do this on an industrial scale. And so it's not little flexible tubes that I'm pumping beer through. It's big hoses that are an inch and a half in diameter. What do those cost? I don't know. I've never bought one. Let me go try and look that up and figure it out. Um, and then how many of those do we need and what length and— when we bought all that stuff, we
2: didn't know that we would have barrels on this side of the tap room that were lodged in a corner such a way that they can't be moved. Well, now we need to d- chain all of our hoses together to accomplish this. And it's, boy, it's, a, <laughs> it's a good thing that we bought that extra three foot hose because otherwise we wouldn't be able to get to those barrels. We'd be two
0: feet short of that barrel. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: That's so the kind of specific, yeah. specific problem that
1: you can only think of if it
2: happened to you. As soon as we signed the lease for this space, and even before we signed the lease, when we were just planning and, and having great ideas, this was practically an empty shell at that time we had our plans and we had all our table layouts, and the cold room will be here, and these things will be in the cold room and the, this is how the brew house will be laid out. All of those initial plans you know we made our purchases based on those initial plans, and a lot of those things have changed uh you know we're broadly still fit, I think the original plan, but none of these barrels were in the plan. We knew we were going to do barrels, but we didn't they weren't on the design you know uh and so Yeah, exactly. And so it has been a voyage of discovery in that respect as well. Like, okay, well, these are all the plans we set up. So, okay, well, what outside of our plans can, that we want to do now, can we accommodate with all the stuff that we bought from the original plan?
0: I mean, there's other considerations, like, you know, just sort of, that's like the build out, but operational concerns, like, okay, we're going to be open X number of hours. Well, the landlord wants this number of hours because he wants this much revenue and we want that many hours because we're like, well, how are we going to do this? Okay. We need to be open this many days a week. We were planning on starting out opening four days a week and taking it slow while we learned how to do it. And that really wasn't going to work with the lease we wound up signing. And so now we're, now we're open seven days a week, but we started out six days, which means, you know, we, we started out saying we'd like an owner on site at all times. You know, we're also hire bar staff. But there's only four of us, and so how can four of us actually staff seven nights a week? Four of
2: us who kept our day jobs. Four you of us know, who kept our day jobs, own, yeah. You
0: know, and some
2: of us with families, and some of us with other obligations, and and uh, and still make that scheduling work, and still keep again our original plan of having an owner on site at all times. And you
1: found that that there's just no way. Like what are the what are the hours? You're running I think 12 it, hours a day. I think it, no
0: we have it works. It works because uh one of our partners' wives uh decided that she would like to back off on her job and take on more hours here. So that we, we count her as an owner for those purposes. And so that helps a lot. Um I think if, if Bridget weren't taking a shift or two each week, there's no way we could do it. I don't think we could. No.
2: Um where um, we could, we just be we so tired. stressed out that this would not be as fun of a project as we wanted it to be.
0: Yeah, and so there's just yeah, and I mean you know having staff here, well that costs money. I mean having us here, we have to pay ourselves that, that costs money too, and that's you know okay if I have if I'm open an extra hour that means and you know, I've got two staff on plus me that's an extra three hours of pay and that's gonna dilute the tip pool in this way and I'm gonna pay people this much and like you know so the the cascading effects on your budget spreadsheet at some point you're just like well I hope we're I hope we're making enough money because this is. This is so complex that any assumption I make is gonna is gonna change everything. So let's just try it and see what happens.
1: There was one thing that you said that really weirded me out, which was the landlord giving a shit about how many hours you were open. Is, oh, oh,
0: I'll tell you why. Yeah. That's because a lot of commercial leases. We didn't know this. Uh, we've all rented an apartment. Yeah, I think most of us own a house now, but we've all rented an apartment before, and so we knew about leases. But a commercial lease frequently has a uh, a revenue clause. What do they call it? It's so like a revenue share, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So like the base rent is you know this many dollars a month. But then once you go over a certain amount of revenue, they also want an extra percentage of your revenue as as rent. And this is this is normal. Like we did, at first we were like, what? That's crazy. And then we looked it all up and we're like, no, that's normal. That's normal in commercial leasing, um, you know, for, for a retail lease. And so we had to negotiate that with him. Like, well, okay, he's going to want this much of our revenue past, you know, this annual amount. And is that, you know, is that worth it? Should we do that, right? Um, and, and he, on his side, had to consider okay, you guys are, you're just selling pints. Like the, 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 the profit margin on a pint of beer is actually pretty decent if you look at the ingredients, right? Um, the profit margin on, say, a typical restaurant that he might have in this space instead is much lower. And so he takes a lower percentage, in a, in a usual lease, he takes a lower percentage of a higher amount. Here he's like, well, you guys aren't going to have the, the sheer revenue that a cafe might have but, you're, but, but but I'll take a higher percentage because you're going to have a lot. So he's, he still wants to make his money either way, right? Uh, right. I mean, a
2: typical customer might have one or two. So a typical customer might be spending 10 or 12 bucks here as opposed to spending mm-hmm. 30 bucks at a restaurant. Right. And so, you know, he's thinking, well, are these guys ever going to be able to, to, you know, make me any money versus if I let a restaurant take the space instead of these guys? Mm-hmm. Right.
0: And that's 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 a consideration that you know in our initial planning, none, none of us knew anything about commercial leases, right? Yeah. And that's that's what we had to sort of figure out on the fly. Yeah, none of us had any
2: restaurant operation, brewery operation. Most of us did not have any entrepreneurial experience of any kind, so it has definitely been a, a lot of learning there. Kind of said poking at spreadsheets and and get you know figuring out which numbers are meaningful and and how very small decisions can cascade to you know what we decided to buy or you know when we just we decided to do the project at all there was a lot of uh sort of clandestine pint counting you go to a brewery and just hang out and see how many pints have been poured <laughs> in an hour and you think okay okay maybe we can make this work you know but if you get there on a good hour and there, you know and the, you just happen to be at a place where there's people you know a long line out the door and you're like oh man i'm gonna be a millionaire in a couple of years this is great <laughs> but it turns out not everybody is packed every hour of the day.
0: <laughs> yeah. The time you wanted to go there and count is the same time everyone else wanted to go there and drink. And okay. so it's uh, yeah, that's true.
1: In a, in a vague sense, since this is something i never heard of before, this landlord taking a share, what is like, what is the, sort of that? What does that actually look like? Is that like, are we talking like a like 30 cents off of every beer more or less, you know, in terms of percentage of your revenue or, um, or, or what?
0: So I, in our research, I think I recall that a, a typical retail share is like over it once you get over a certain threshold for whatever's normal for that area for that that type of restaurant etc the landlord will ask for 6% of revenues um i'm sure that varies from city to city and so on but that seemed seemed about normal and that was what he was targeting but figuring that we were going to have about half the sheer revenue that you know the french cafe he was thinking about having here instead he was like well over that over a certain threshold you know I'll, I want 12% of revenues and we're like, okay, does that make sense? Like, we don't pay him the twelve percent until we get to that threshold. And we're looking at that threshold, going, that'd actually be pretty great if we made that much money. That'd be that'd be just fine. Yeah, I'm fine giving him twelve percent beyond that, in order to you know to get the space. Because I mean, you know, he had the space, and that was those were his terms, right? We could do that, or we could go be located somewhere else. Keep, and, keep looking for another year. <laughs> yeah, keep looking for another year. And we kind of fell in love with the space. So,
1: so when I guessed thirty cents for every beer, I was like, was kind of spot on there, wouldn't I? Like that was, if you said 5% of revenue and yeah.
2: <laughs> but only once you hit a certain threshold. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's one of those things where like, like I kind of said, when, once we get to the point where we've hit that threshold that our, our lease currently stipulates, we we'll be, will be very happy indeed. We, I, we don't want anything more than to have to pay our landlord this extra money because it means we're doing very well.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I think that's, when I say that's normal in a commercial lease, I think I mean that's normal in a retail lease. Right. Like we're paying retail rent to be in a retail spot a lot of breweries you know are not they have a tap room but it's in the middle you know in the middle of a warehouse district they're paying
1: right? yeah they're paying warehouse lease pa- yeah. yeah and
0: they're probably not paying that percentage of revenue because the the owner of the property isn't expecting you know a french cafe to be put there so that they can get a cut of the revenue or anything like that yeah. that's my guess but i never rented a warehouse so i'm really not sure actually i haven't researched that thing
1: uh, yeah, I wonder what the Ravenna people are paying. You know, <laughs> nobody thought that garage was ever going to be anything other than holding two cars. You know. <laughs>
0: but it's a great space for them. It really is.
1: Yeah, it works out. It's really cozy. You guys have a little more space than they do. So, <laughs> so now you've mentioned the two other owners and also mentioned your day jobs, which are still which you're still managing to hold on to. So, tell me about your day jobs. Tell me about the other owners. What are some of the other, these other uh, aspects that sort of came together to make this happen?
2: You know, my day job. I'm a software engineer, same as Kenneth. Uh, we're you know, and and 50 of the rest of Seattle, uh, and our other two other two uh, owners work at the University of Washington, and our our ownership is really interesting. We've been uh, friends for a, a very long time. One of the other partners is my older brother, who went to high school with our our fourth owner, and they went to the same high school as Kenneth, uh, just a couple of years apart. So I'm a lot younger. I'm a lot younger. If, Question oh, you really never look comes i yeah. significantly younger yeah. than these guys. Yeah. Uh, no, um, and so I didn't. I did not go to high school with them, but I have. I have known the other owners for very nearly the rest the entirety of my life.
0: I mostly trust them. <laughs> we have contracts, so it's okay.
1: So you're both software engineers. You mm-hmm. mentioned a couple of families. Do you guys have kids, wives?
0: I do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I have a uh, nine, six, and three year old at home.
1: So this is fairly
2: taxing
0: on your. This is free fairly taxing. Time. So I only take one shift a week. Okay. Like I, I am the Sunday night shift. Yeah, you know, I don't take the weeknight shifts. That's the deal I made with my wife.
2: And my brother and I don't have kids, but it's still it's still I mean, a lot of work. Like, it's so it's still we take more shifts. We take more shifts, but it it, it is a lot of work. And our, our last owner has a, a couple of kids. But they're teenagers and can feed them, feed and clothe themselves. They yeah. don't
0: want to be around them anyway. So. Exactly. <laughs> Once they
2: figure out how to
1: put a Tatino's pizza in the oven, then they're, yeah, they exactly. basically raise themselves. Yeah. Well, exactly. another
0: four or five years, we'll be hiring them, I assume so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you mentioned now that you take a shift. You take several shifts. And you mentioned earlier the you pay, you pay yourselves to come out and take these shifts. Yeah. Are you paying your, I guess you're paying yourselves hourly or, or something like that. I mean, yeah, so I I can't imagine what it's like to be the owner of a brewery, but sort of paying yourself money rather than just sort of going, well, you each get a quarter of this, you know, yeah. like.
0: So far we we just pay ourselves the same as we pay our staff. We make the same rate. We're in the same tip pool, um, et cetera. Someday when it starts generating more profits, we'll, you know, we'll have to have conversations about with our accountant about how much of this do we distribute to people, And how does that even work? Like it hasn't hasn't been an issue yet because you know we're sort of we're getting by, but we're not really making a ton of money yet. So,
1: oh yeah, totally. Profits are profits are nice right now. It's cash flow. Exactly.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And the the uh, you know the amount we pay ourselves uh, is the same amount that the staff gets paid, and you know that's I think that's a requirement from the federal government because. You know, if we don't pay ourselves and we work for free, but then we disperse profits to ourselves, then, you know, we are going around Social Security and going around, you know, Medicare and all these other taxes. Yeah, actually, there's a tax. Things that
0: you didn't expect. Oh, yeah, no, I didn't know any of this. We just said, oh, well,
2: we'll work for free or we'll not work for free, but we'll we'll work for our share of the business or whatever. We had these plans, but it turns out, no, you just gotta pay yourself because uh, otherwise you'll fall afoul of the IRS.
0: Yeah, your your accountant, if you're thinking about starting this up, your accountant will tell you, you must pay yourself a reasonable market rate. Oh yeah, we can't just pay ourselves that. like a dollar a week either. Yeah. It's not like that. You gotta pay yourself what you're the IRS paying wants other people. Cut. And so, mm. yeah. <laughs>
1: Wow, that is kind of annoying, but at the same time, like, yeah, okay, fine, I guess I get it. It's understandable. Yeah, I I understand why they want it. Yeah, but yeah, totally. When you're doing the math and thinking, "Gosh, how do I?" Yeah, I can totally scrape by on my software engineer salary while I'm trying while I'm pumping every dollar to make this work, and uh, and then on top of that, have to pay a little extra taxes. It's like, okay, whatever. Thank you so much to Ty and Kenneth. This week, we learned all about them and the origins of Burke Gilman Brewery. Next week, on an episode available only to Patreon patrons, we will hear about Burke Gilman's beer, how they choose what they brew, and some of the implications it has on their business. Washington Beer Talk is possible because of Patreon.com. We post one episode every other week, but if you like the podcast, you can have access to an episode every week, exclusive only to Patreon supporters go to Patreon.com slash Cycling Cicerone to gain access to more episodes, Cycling Cicerone swag, and all kinds of other neat perks. Hey, are you a brewery that wants to be on a podcast? Shoot me an email, Andrew at CyclingCicerone.com.